Welcome to the Founders and Friends podcast with Scott Horn at Cruise Consulting. This week's guest is Kathy Weber-Gardner of Montgomery Pacific Law Group. Kathy is focused on startups. She does a lot of M&A work, a lot of getting startups set up right and going forward, contract negotiations, everything above. This is one of the most kind of informative podcasts I think I've done. Tons of good questions for Kathy here, and she was a champ. She answered them all and really just dropped some knowledge on the audience. Hope you have a good time listening to it. We had a lot of fun recording it. Welcome to Founders and Friends. It's Scott Orn here with Kathy Weber Gardner of Montgomery Pacific Law Group. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you, Scott. Awesome to have you here. We're sitting in her palatial law firm offices. Very nice. And he's joking about that <laughs> <laughs> because we work with startups. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so Kathy and I met probably a couple months ago, and I was just super impressed. She's a really nice and super smart woman, and I thought it'd be awesome to have her on the podcast. So you you have kind of an interesting story. Like you were at a big law firm, mm-hmm. really big law firm, which you can talk about, and then you joined Montgomery Pacific, and you basically like got everything kind of on the right track. Like you want yeah. to talk about kind of your early experience and sure. then how you came over? Sure. Like a lot of corporate lawyers, um, I started out actually at Mayor Brown in Chicago, so another uh, multinational law firm. Um, And then um, my family moved to San Francisco, and I joined Oric here in the city and became partner a couple years later. And just love that. But finally, at one point in my life, I was ready to take some time off, and um, we actually we're traveling to Korea to adopt our son. Oh, no way. That's amazing. So, yes. So, it was it was time to take a break in the action and I did that for a couple months. And at that point, a great woman named Karen Smith, um, who's GC of Twilio. Oh, wow. Um, That's a great company. Yeah. I'm t- actually going to try. I'm totally buying their IPO. Yeah. And actually, yeah. One, I don't know if you noticed this, but one of my earlier guests was Brian Mullen, who's their first business hire. Yes, and he, I did yeah, see that. And he's he's a super entertaining guy. Great They're great making company. headlines when no one else is. Yeah. So, yes. Um, she and our former colleague, Lexi Rohr, are both there and just doing so well. So Karen approached me and said, hey, why don't you join me? I just started my own firm. And Karen had been a partner at Cooley, and Lexi had been at Cooley, and I joined them. And I was moving from being a partner in a multinational law firm to uh, not taking out the garbage, but pretty much doing whatever in terms of uh, small firm was really an interesting switch. Didn't you like it? Like I I mean, before I came over and met up with you, I just sent out two offer letters. That, yeah. Like I typed everything up and Vanessa's yeah. telling me then, you know, yeah. and it's like, that's, that's life and what we're doing. It is. And because I work with entrepreneurs all the time, it makes sense that I know how to be one too. And my, when I was growing up, my dad, before entrepreneur was a cool word, mm-hmm. um, he <laughs> told all three of us kids that he hoped we would be entrepreneurs. And I said, Oh, no way. I want to be at a big law firm. And Look where I am. Yeah. Look, look what I'm doing. Do you talk about that with your clients? And like, look, I understand. I empathize because yeah. I we talk about that a lot. Because like everything they're going through, we're going through the same thing, right? And I mean, they'll often start out with, you know, I'm financially strapped, and and we say, don't worry. So is every other one of our clients. So that's I always, whenever I get those emails, I'm always like teetering between I totally understand but I'm also like well let's figure out how financially strapped you are yeah. because we right. also need to get paid for our work exactly yeah. yeah we do 
do have to get paid. Yeah. So you came over, you basically just left Oric and you like jumped feet first. Uh, yeah. I, I, as I said, I took some time off, but it was a matter of months and I jumped um, to this firm. And then I had to start again because even though I had great contacts, the clients I had at Oric were all, you know, Fortune 100 companies. And um, at this firm, I was really focused on working with entrepreneurs. Yeah. So it took a while. How did you, how did you build your client base? Cause I think yeah. there's a, the entrepreneurs who are listening to this can learn. And also yeah. it's helpful for them to know where to find you, you know, like yeah. how did, how did, how did they network to you or yeah. did you network to them? Right. Well, I, I used to joke with my partner. Um, my partner's Karen Masterson Deans, by the way, and she's a former partner at MoFo and mm. pretty amazing person. But I used to joke with her. We had this really, really bad website, and it was really embarrassing. <laughs> and But I used to say, don't worry, because I don't want to get a client through our website. I want to look okay when they check yeah, us out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's a long way of saying the way clients find us is the old-fashioned word of mouth. And that's a great thing for us, too, that we they're coming to us from other clients that we loved and worked with. Yeah. Or uh, accountants or they're, law firms. They're pre-qualified, yeah. too, when they come yeah. on referral. It's like you know what yeah. kind of person you're going to be dealing yeah. with. Yeah, and I also – the other sort of old-fashioned thing I do is actually ask to meet – I've usually met every client in person before mm. I start working with them, which is a little tough when a lot of our clients are from outside the U.S. Yeah, yeah. But I find that it's good for them to get to know us and make sure we're a good fit for them and vice versa. We just had one of – a client I'd only dealt with kind of remotely. They're yeah. in Palo Alto. This shows you like the world yeah. of remote now. Yeah. They're in Palo Alto. Right we're in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, but they came – they finally came to our office after like six months of working together. And it yeah. was so amazing. It was so much fun. Yeah. And then I could just tell they were like so much more confident having met us in mm-hmm. person. And they also just saw we have a, a nice office, and they're like, "Oh, you're you're real human beings. You actually, <laughs> right. it actually matters." So I we try yeah. to do that too. I know, and it's like I said, it's hard because so much, so many of our clients come to Silicon Valley from outside the U.S. And the first conversations we're having with them are Skype. Yeah. And um, right after I saw you, I think I went to Australia on business, and I'd met most of our clients, but not all. And it was just such a great opportunity to see them where they started yeah, and have them show me their cities. And, uh, it was great. That's really, that's always really fun mm-hmm. actually when they show you the city. That's mm-hmm. cool. Um, are you still kind of re- like you say like your website isn't that nice or oh, no, it's, it's fine yeah, now. I was going to say like, yeah, <laughs> okay I, I just looked at it and it was pretty nice. <laughs> yeah. But like, how do you, is there, has you, have you evolved on that? Like, are you part of like networking events yeah, or absolutely. like, what do you, what do you do? What like, do we do? Yeah. Cause a lot of professional service people listen to this actually, or service yeah. providers to startups, right? It's like, yeah. you know, it's, it's a combination of things. One of the, um, I mentioned to you that when I first started working with Australian companies, and this is now like nine years ago, I got a call from a woman who runs something called Anza Tech Network. Her name's Vicki Forrest. And she said, hey, uh, she and I had been on like a board together. And she said, I remember that you do a lot of international work. Will you please come speak to all these Aussies? Oh, that's And awesome. I said, um, yes, I will. However, I have never done a deal in Australia. <laughs> and she's like, oh, that's okay. You can come anyway. So that was the beginning of it. And a lot of times client, uh, lawyers will bemoan that they go and they speak somewhere and it's all for naught. But from the very beginning, as I went to these events, um, it was an 
awesome way to generate clients. That's amazing. Clients you, I still have. Yeah. Well, yeah. When we were talking last, you you told me about this like Australian pipeline. That's, yes. That's, it's kind of like a happy accident, right? Like how, how did this happy. come along? Yes. And um, Australians, as a general proposition, are such nice people mm-hmm. to work with. Um, we have like four or five that are that started in right. Australia and coming to the States. I saw you interviewed um, the gentleman who started 99 Design. Oh, yeah, and yeah. I was in their offices. Yeah. 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 Actually, my, the guy interviewed is like, see, I think he's head of product, but okay. he's in Australia constantly. Right. And he loves, he actually loves it because he know. gets like, he has amazing uh, team members in, yeah. I think they're in Melbourne. Yes. I was, I, I yeah. actually visited our oh, offices. Okay. Quince- yeah. I mean, I didn't meet him, but yeah. Another friend of mine just took the, um, I, I think it might be head of product or head of marketing at uh, Campaign Monitor, which is a really big Australian company yeah. too. Yeah. So yeah, they're, it's interesting how the, the cross fertilization is starting to happen. Exactly. And so with the Australians, after I made a few speeches to these groups of tech companies that were coming here kind of checking out the Silicon Valley market, um, that really started growing on itself. And I probably speak to groups of Australian companies several times a year. Um, And as I said, I was just there doing the same thing. And then, of course, when you've had good success with one company, they're naturally Mm -hmm. going to share Mm-hmm. Um, information about you, yeah. And I think with lawyers, lawyers aren't always people. People, people. <laughs> Would that be fair? The, I think the best ones are, though. Honestly, like yeah. they have to be able to relate. I've yeah. worked with tons of lawyers, and they have yeah. to be able to relate to their clients. So they yeah. can't relate. It's hard for them. To, they may technically understand the right kind of path, yeah. but they may not be able to give good advice. You know, right? And so, um, Karen, my partner Karen, and I've been very deliberate about the associates we have: uh, Angelique Tremble and Christine Padlin both extremely personable as well as awesome lawyers. And I think that matters to clients. Yeah. Oh, um, totally. That really helps us attract and retain clients. It's not something you can put on your website, but... No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. What's kind of the like quirkiest or a funny thing you, that ha- that's happened like an Australian deal? Like there's yeah. got to be... Or you, maybe oh. you're dealing with like an Australian to China deal or something like yeah, that. Yeah, well, I think... It's, I don't know if I'd call it quirky, but one of our clients who um, had done what a, fl- a flip up, which I'm happy to explain. Mm, actually, that would be great. Yeah, I, I know it is. But. They had done a flip up um, <clears throat> and became a U.S. parent company, and from our perspective, seemed to be doing really well here. Got very, I don't know, just frustrated with operating in the U.S. and felt much more co- comfortable operating in Australia. And so they flipped back. Oh my gosh! Yes. Which Did they have U.S. investors? More Australian investors. Usually. Yes. Yeah. It was, and I, I haven't seen that since, and I haven't really seen anyone talking about flipping back. Um, but you know. Yeah, maybe you can explain what a flip up is. Sure. I think people will like that. Well, again, because we work with so many tech and life science companies who are expanding to Silicon Valley from outside the U.S., you know, they're typically coming here to get venture money. However, they don't always know, first of all, if they're going to need it or if they can get it. So the way it usually works is, and let's take Australia as an example, an Australian, Australian company will have established themselves, say, in Sydney and be doing quite well and have their own customers and see the U.S. market and be interested in coming here. They'll come here, and they'll still be not sure if they can really attract the U.S. customers, but they'll have us set up a wholly owned, Mm -hmm. typically Delaware subsidiary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We'll do that. 
they'll keep testing the market, they'll enter into contracts, they'll start getting attract, um, interest from angels or VCs. When that happens and it's real interest, the angels or the VCs will say, well, look, now it's time to flip up to the U.S., which means taking the U.S. subsidiary and making it the U.S. parent. And then the Australian company becomes the wholly owned subsidiary. And that's mm -hmm. really important because the intellectual property is sitting in Australia as well as many great people, I'm sure, too. But the U.S. investors, such as angels and VCs, will only invest in a U.S. company. Yeah. And again, it's it's got to be it, Delaware. It's an awesome point. How, they will only invest in Delaware C-Corps. Yes. And I get, I can't even, probably five calls a day asking yeah. that. Can you yeah. explain why only Delaware C-Corps? Yeah. Sure. Um, this is exactly this is questions I get all the time. Yes. Well, it's funny because when I go and speak, and when I was just in Australia speaking, and I said, "Does everyone know who, why Delaware <laughs> and where Delaware is?" and I got a lot of puzzled looks. But that is funny. Like, where is the Delaware is almost like this virtual state? You know, yeah, and it's a all, virtual corporate state. Is of what course it is. the people in Delaware will not agree. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, they're but fine people. They're fine people, and it's actually a beautiful state. So Delaware, decades ago, decided it was going to become the go-to state in all of the U.S., and it um, is now the place that companies want to go public, in which they want to go public. It has the most sophisticated corporate laws yeah. in all of the U.S., the best courts. It just um, is pretty fabulous from a corporate law perspective, and so... Um, venture capitalists and angels knowing that public companies come out of Delaware um, want their companies they invest in to be Delaware corporations. Totally. Mm -hmm. It's like they understand – everyone understands the case law there. So it's like there's yeah. not going to be crazy surprises or things like that. Right. And it's um, – another thing that surprises our international clients is that as lawyers – we're very restricted. I'm a California lawyer, and so I can advise this to California law. But the big exception is that any corporate lawyer in the United States is able to advise as to Delaware corporate law. Oh, I didn't know that. So, oh. um, you know, if someone came to me and said, hey, I got this great New York company, I would send them off to a New York lawyer. Mm -hmm. But we are all able to do that in yeah, that's why that because makes, we all need to. Yeah, it's a it's such a simple thing, but it, it, mm -hmm. people will just mess themselves up incorporating incorrectly yeah. and things like that. Yeah, uh, um, well, that's good. So, tell me one thing we were talking about before we turned the mics on was your M and A practice. Like, oh, we okay. actually do. I did M and A. Yeah, we have companies get bought and sold all the time. Yeah, like, what do you look for in your clients, and what type of transactions do you do? Well, typically, as partners in this firm, my partner and I work with sellers. Mm -hmm. And that's because they're often the smaller yeah. entity. Um, when we were both big with, with our big <laughs> firms, we were representing the big buyers. Totally, and totally. so that's the way it is. Um, it was. And we also did public company acquisitions, which we don't do here. Yeah. Um, but that's good that you've been on the other side and you know oh, yeah. what the buyer is looking for. Like yeah. how important diligence, IP, you talked about IP yes. earlier, like that's got to be rock solid or they can't buy you. Yes, absolutely. And um, one of the things that we see pretty frequently when a seller comes to us is they'll say, well, we've got this great buyer and we love them and uh, we've actually already signed our term sheet. Oh, and my God. So, And we're ready to <laughs> oh, no. have you draft the documents. And we also we always you know, give them a little bit of a pain look and say, 
wow, uh, is there anything we can do about that? Because in a perfect world, I know lawyers always think they should be involved at some early stage, but I promise you this is absolutely true. A lawyer should be involved at the time of the term sheet. Totally. Oh, my God. And it can save a client so much time and money if we're involved at that point. But most importantly, from a seller's perspective, the seller has all of its leverage at the time prior to signing the term sheet. After the term sheet's signed, they are the words out on the yeah. street. Yeah, talk about that a little bit because, yeah. like, they they presumably have two or three people bidding against for them. That would be great if yeah. that were always true. But, yeah, and all so they're like the the prettiest bell of the ball, right. and then and they can demand certain things, and then yeah. once they sign that term sheet, if they have to go back to the other buyers, yeah, they're tainted. Well, usually they can't. Usually the buyers have an exclusivity provision yep, in there, I so forgot, they yeah. can't. Um, often they need to start telling at least some of their employees because they need help getting ready for the acquisition. And so as soon as the word gets out, you know, they are off the market and they lose their bargaining opportunity. So the more time that the seller spends on putting every important um, aspect of the deal into the term sheet, the much better off the seller is. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you find people who like unintentionally or maybe unaware – like agree to like a crazy earnout structure or something like that, and they're like, "Oh no, I'll, I'll get that money." But then you know, and I know yeah. that it's really hard to collect on that. Like, yeah. may, or maybe talk about earnout and earnouts, right? So, in terms of what earnout earnouts are, they're usually part of a purchase price. In other words, a buyer will say, "Well, seller, you sound amazing, and if everything that you said is true about your company, which we'll find out over the next couple of years." We're happy to spend X dollars on you, but we're not sure everything you're saying is true. So therefore, we'll pay you Y dollars at the time we close. And then over the next two years, we'll see how the company performs. And if it performs the way that you say it's going to, then you get all the other money and everyone's happy. Yeah. It sounds super simple and it is kind of alluring. However, the acquirer always starts making changes as soon as they buy you. Yes. And oftentimes those changes are kind of implicitly designed for you not to hit your numbers. That's right. Because they don't want to pay that extra money. No. And they have another use for you or they're not Mm -hmm. giving you the sales resources or whatever it is. Yeah. And so it becomes very difficult to hit those numbers. Yes, absolutely. And that's part of, um, I think I've had times where my clients feel a little impatient with me at the term sheet stage because I'll say to them, we need to actually drill down at this point and negotiate some certainty around how you're going to earn the earnout. Are you on the board of the company? Do you have a budget committed to your part of the business um, that you can work against? Do you have staff committed? And at the time, it seems like, oh, can't we worry about that yeah, until yeah. and after we close yeah. our deal? They're great people. They won't, They're good people. Yeah, yeah. And sadly, no. Mm-hmm. I mean, it needs to be nailed down, including you know the compensation package of the founders of the company if they're mm-hmm. moving on to work with the buyer. All those things to, need to be nailed on, nailed down <clears throat> prior to signing the term sheet because after that, the you know you've lost your bargaining power. And um, you then are impacting your ability to actually earn the earnout that you're expecting to get. 
because you're not in control anymore. I t- I, I've seen it a lot. Mm-hmm. So that's an awesome tip. Like get your yeah. lawyer involved super early in the process. Yes. And I, I could not like agree with that yeah. anymore. Yeah. What other things have you seen where you like help just kind of help your clients glide through the the M&A process? Mm. Sometimes when I'm just – I was just talking to a potential client this morning about an acquisition and – They thought they had a buyer lined up and it didn't work. And so now they want to go out to the market. And I always have to say, look, I'm not best friends with any M&A advisors or investment bankers. I get nothing from their involvement with you. But I can't tell you how many times the right one can really help you Mm -hmm. ensure that you are working with the right buyer Mm -hmm. or that you're getting the best price. And yes, it's all about relationships, but you as the seller need to know what is out there in the market for you before you commit to somebody. And the more buyers you have circling around. Totally. Yeah. I Sometimes I find, I, I give this advice like on job searches too. Like, oh, yes. Don't, don't just like say, don't get an inbound and in uh, like say a, a proposal and uh, yeah. you know negotiate, but then agree to that without running a process. Yes. And it's for job searches and for M and A because mm-hmm. you don't know what else is out there. And once people kind of know you're for sale as a company yeah. and know how attractive you are and kind mm-hmm. of can peek on their hood a little bit, yeah. you really create a bidding war. And I've I mean I used to work at Hamburg and Quist and like yeah. David Golden and Paul Cleveland, like the two you know head of M and A, head of investment banking. Those guys, I would watch them drive up the value of a company a hundred. $200 million exactly. in an afternoon. Yep. And it was like, we used to call David Golden, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like he was amazing. Yeah. Right. But yeah. it's like just the right words, the the right kind of leverage points mm-hmm. and right communication can really change your outcome. It's amazing. Right. And it's also important. Um, I was talking to another prospective client. They were actually going to buy out. They were employees of a company and they were going to do a management buyout, buy out the owners. And I said, do you know the value of the company? Have you had it valued? Well, no, we're not going to do that. And again, it's not a legal point. I was well. That is might be a legal point for doing a management buyout, and you well, don't get a fairness or well, some that's type true. of. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah, you're right. But yeah. we were so oh, earlier early, early, than okay. that, yeah. and I was. If you are thinking, I mean, these people are going to put their life savings on mm-hmm. the line. Mm-hmm. They have to know what the value of the company mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure you're right too. Yeah. So to I me, only say that on really management buyouts because that's management buyouts are yeah. he- heavy in conflict. Like right. the manager team's buying something yes. and the sh- other shareholders are like, why are you buying this? And yeah. I'm not, you know, like, right. And but they I, have to but, show that they, yeah. they gave them a fair deal. Yeah. Absolutely. But I think your yeah. point of like, let's do some research and actually figure out what mm-hmm. the market is and do some financial comps. Exactly. See what things are worth is is huge. Like, yeah, who would mm-hmm. it'd be like marrying the first person who asked you on a date? No, you know? I use that whole dating marriage yeah. analogy a lot. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, but it's so true. Oh, God, it's and you're, what, true. it might be even. I mean, it's 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 harder to get out of a of a of a acquisition than a marriage. Maybe Sadly, I don't even know. Yeah. I think so. Don't um, worry, baby. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's another? Th- I mean, this is yeah. really good stuff. Like, what what right. other kind of is it um, about like what about retention? Like that's always like something. Yeah, that's hard. There's always kind of, and a lot of my friends are like, they're VPs of sales or VP yeah. of finance. They're not the CEO. Yeah. We have a lot of obviously a lot of clients are CEOs, but like, what happens to the VPs in an acquisition? Right. So it's really it has to be part of the thinking of you know the shareholders, the owners of the company, who's ever leading the charge. They have to be convinced 
um, that it's important for those VPs, if they want to stay, to stay on and make that part of the acquisition negotiations. Now, of course, how do you handle that? Because people are free to do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. People are free to fire. Mm-hmm. But you know, the way you handle it is it's to tie it to some monetary reward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You incentivize the people to stay on um, monetarily, or there are uh, certain ways that you can penalize the buyer if they don't keep them. Got it. How do you assuming all works out on the front end? Like when you start a startup and you're hiring like a VP team, yeah. How do you make sure they get taken care of in an acquisition? Okay, well, there's there's a bunch of different ways. Mm-hmm. So if if we're thinking purely financially, um, and again, I was just having this conversation this morning. You can create something called a management carve out plan, mm-hmm. in which you ensure certain members of the team that don't hold stock or not holding that much stock, you will ensure that they get compensated out of the proceeds of the acquisition to keep them in the game and working hard mm-hmm. until the minute mm-hmm. it closes mm-hmm. or even past that. That's a common thing for like companies that have a lot of preference, like liquidation preferences. That's true. And, like that, and right? then there's, so you're right, that um, I've seen that more, mostly with founders mm-hmm. who are really diluted mm-hmm. and the VCs want them to stay involved until the deal closes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the other, it's very similar, our phantom stock, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. phantom stock. And again, the employees are uh, incentivized to stay because there's a payout at the time of the closing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about like acceleration? And like, do yes. you give your VP of sales and VP of finance acceleration or yeah. how does that work? It's always a negotiation process. It's usually for just the C-suite or just mm-hmm. below that. Mm-hmm. And the and there's no magic way to do it, but one way that I've seen fairly frequently is that the employee will say, look, um, if I'm going to stay here and work until we close this, this acquisition, I want uh, to have any... Uh, shares that aren't vested, I want 60% of those to be vested, to be accelerated the time we close. And then, I mean, of course, that person would like them all to be, (laughs) but the company and the VCs that, you know, our shareholders will say, well, no, there has to be a piece of your unvested shares that continue on with the new company. Yeah, because the acquirer doesn't want you to be, like, calling in rich every day after the acquisition and not come to work. Yeah. Um, Those are, like, three amazing tips. Yeah. So how, like, just on a kind of a lighter note, like, what's a really kind of, have you seen anything crazy in M&A deal you're working on that, like, Mm. you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe... Or something funny where, a, like, the facts, the the term sheet not getting signed before five o'clock and the deal expiring, or something like that. Yeah, I've kind. Of, I feel like I've. Seen, I feel like I've seen. <laughs> There's everything. like twenty to choose from. Yeah, there it is twenty to choose from. I did have a client who um, chose not to hire an investment banker, mm. and. Um, just they were so, just really convinced about how great the yeah, buyer would be, yeah. and the buyer actually, in my you know, I'm the most cynical person at the table, right? I'm the lawyer, and the buyer did seem really great, and I was like, "You're right, you made the good good decision." Mm-hmm. And after we closed the deal, um, about a month later, uh, the client called me and said, "Is there a lemon law for oh, sales no. of companies?" Oh God! <laughs> and I said, "No." <laughs> this was the buyer. It was seller. Oh, seller. Oh, so they got was, bought by a bad 
a bad acquirer. I wouldn't say that. I would just say it wasn't going the way they oh, hoped. Yeah. That stinks. I know. It happens. It's kind of like a 50-50 thing. It is. You know? And but, that's part of the do, you know, the diligence. And you, yes, the buyer's doing tons of due diligence on the seller. And you don't think about it so much vice versa, except if the seller's getting buyer stock. But regardless of whether or not you're getting buyer stock, that whole wedding analogy you need to know who you're marrying and you, you don't just want to do financial due diligence but you want to understand what their reputation is in the market and how they've dealt with other companies they've acquired and you can find that out easily. yeah the i was listening to the expensify ceo talk and he had sold his last company to akamai and he was used to like like most founders like just working 10 12 hours a day and just really getting after it mm-hmm. and he's like two weeks after i got acquired i looked around and everyone was leaving like at four o'clock mm-hmm. and i was like i'm feel stupid for working so hard at this yeah. big company mm-hmm. so he's like i get i gotta do something else you know right. but it's like it's i think there's just different cultures and there's people who are builders and people who are caretakers and Right. That's okay. You know, yeah. the, the big acquirers provide liquidity and keep the cycle going. They do. Yeah. Yeah. And um, as you know, in, in California, the one exception to the non-compete, so in California, you cannot tell an employee that once they leave you, they can't mm-hmm. compete with you. They mm-hmm. can. Um, and that's rock solid. And the exception is that if um, somebody owns a part of a company or all of a company and sells that company, they can be bound under the non-compete for a couple of years. And that's always a sub- subject of lots of negotiation. And that can be a real challenge for these entrepreneurs to really stick yeah. it out under the new parent. Yeah, because they, they're they really good in one sector and that's mm-hmm. how they can make a living. They can start another company if mm-hmm. they want to, but they're, mm-hmm. they're stuck. You know? Yeah. Well, and, and to your point with your friend, I mean, it's it's hard to go from running the show and working 12 hours a day to seeing somebody else. Like one of my clients who his company was his baby. He he was it was amazing what he did with it. And then after he sold it, he saw the parent or the, the new buyer, the employees just wasting money. Yeah. It was so hard yeah. for him to watch yeah. that happen. Yeah. yeah, it's I mean, there's a lot of kind of this. They can go a lot of different ways, but. I think, you know, there are entrepreneurs who go to these big companies and just build a huge division and kick butt. And like you look at YouTube or WhatsApp or Instagram or like, you know, and those are like, and I give the founders, yeah, Yeah. and I give the founders a ton of credit because like Mm -hmm. they could have, they they could just call in, call in rich as I was Mm -hmm. called, but they're, (laughs) but they're like, Hey, I'm building something super important and I'm super motivated. I'm going to, Kudos to those guys. So yeah. if you're getting bought, be one of those people. Don't be one of the people who exactly. just calls in. You and- know, find a company that you can really thrive in and make it a fascinating next chapter in yeah. your career. That's great advice. So what's uh, – just kind of wrapping up here. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's new – like what? Where are you guys going? Where's Montgomery Pacific going? To the moon. Yeah, <laughs> um, we are. We're just thinking about new markets that we can tap into. And you know, I, I have spent a lot of time talking about Australia, but I I didn't mention that we do quite a bit of work um, in Asia, in China, and in India, and we also have quite a few clients in Europe, um, and one or two in Israel, and some in Latin America. But we would love um, to do more work. Right now, we're thinking um, the UK, and my partner Karen is headed to London oh, in the wow. fall to meet with clients and do more business development there. That's awesome. 
but yeah, it seems like yeah. most startups start their first office, international office in London. So it's a great place to have a practice for your, and, in terms of Europe. Exactly. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. I guess things are changing now. Maybe a lot of it's China instead of going to Europe first. Yeah, it was, Karen has a lot of, she worked in, um, in China and she also worked in Japan. So um, those are interesting yeah, markets for Yeah, that's us awesome. Too. So international expansion is, so you're going to spend a lot of time on planes, it sounds like. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And then maybe you could tell the audience where to find you. Oh, like, how do yes. they find Kathy? So our name of our firm is Montgomery yeah. Pacific. So our website is www.mplglaw.com. And we are in the financial district, which at some point was really uncool. And all our clients moved to SOMA. And now they're back. Yeah, we're, <laughs> they we, got pushed out of SOMA. We just signed a new lease yesterday. We're moving to Union Square, but like I love working in the financial district. Yeah. It's like, there's like a lot of energy, and it's yeah. easy to get to, and everyone can take BART or the yeah. bus. It's really nice, actually. Yeah. Well, and there's the battery here, which yes. is are you a has, member? I am not a member, but Van- I get to go there a fair amount. Vanessa's dying to be a member. We we were offered a couple years ago mm-hmm. before it was like super crazy exclusive, yeah. and now we can't get a member uh, right. invite anymore. So yeah, story story of my life. My I guess. clients keep taking me there, which is nice. <laughs> yeah, it's great. So you're right next to Transamerica building. Exactly, right? yeah. yes. Oh, that was great. Well, Kathy Weber Gardner, thank you very much. And it's yeah. Montgomery Pacific Law Group. And you gave like five amazing tips. This Good. is this is I maybe the most informative podcast I've ever done. So thank you so much. Yeah. And uh, I appreciate your time. Thanks. Yes. Thank you, Scott. All right, take care.